I want to ask you an important question to help prepare us for our text this morning. Are there things about our government that cause you to fear? The persons, policies, the purposes, the power of our government, past, present, future? Do you think it's the same for citizens of governments of other countries and provinces and states throughout the world? Are you fearful about our future? That's a serious question. And I imply no mockery, weakness, or foolishness at all by asking. I know I fear at times for us, and for our family in the body of Christ throughout the world? What is it about our government that causes so much anxiety, anger, worry, fear throughout our land? That's a big question. And we will not be able to cover all the factors that contribute to the fears throughout our land. But we will be able to identify major aspects this morning of what is happening behind the curtain of our experience. As we continue to read John's transcendent revelation and visions from Jesus, family, we are getting direct insight from God into the spiritual, invisible realm that is at work in and through the physical, visible realm so that we will know how to discern reality around us and persevere well as witnesses to the gospel. Paul says in Romans, through the instruction and encouragement of the scriptures, we have hope. We can see and truly know how privileged we are to have this book. Do you know that? This morning we'll be picking up, as we just read in Revelation 13, and we'll look at the identity and influence of the second member of the unholy trinity that Pastor John introduced us to last week. And then next week, Pastor Tom will preach on the second beast, the third member of this evil triune entity. Last week, we looked at the arch enemy of God, the dragon. Satan himself, the father of all evil and all opposition to God and his kingdom. We saw the cosmic struggle at play and how the devil has been and still is waging war against God by attacking his saints, us Christians and followers of Jesus. We also saw that he is all the more enraged because
because he was decisively defeated on the cross 2,000 years ago. Family, that is the most important point in all of this. Today, we'll see how he goes about waging war against the saints through his primary, one of his primary agents, the beast, the beast of revelation. We'll identify at least three important points of this passage and vision this morning. Who or what is the beast? What are his purposes? And how do we respond? Who or what is the beast? What are his purposes? And how do we respond? Now remember, this is apocalyptic literature. We've been saying this throughout our study. So our goal is to move from the visionary symbols that we see to its historical significance and then to our contemporary applications today. So let's pray and then we'll begin with the first few verses. Lord, as we continue to pray and ask, open our eyes, give us ears to hear, help us see and behold, Lord, marvelous things from your word, that we would know you more fully, live for you more faithfully, Lord, as we love you more and more deeply, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at the first four verses of Revelation, and the ushers can pass out Bibles for anyone who needs a Bible to reference. Otherwise, we'll have uh, the scripture up on the screen, I believe. The first four verses. So we're picking up where we left off last week. To recap, the dragon is enraged with the woman the people of God, and is on a mission to devour and destroy her, anyone that he can get his hands on. Side note, family, that's us. This is no fairy tale. But the dragon is partially restrained now as God protects and nourishes his saints to advance his gospel throughout the world. Remember, he was decisively defeated. So what does he do? Right here in verse 1, he, he summons up the first beast from the sea. The sea in ancient Hebrew commonly symbolized a place of chaos, danger, evil, often associated with the place of opposition to God's kingdom. So who or what is this beast that Satan summons up as his agent. Many throughout church history have identified this beast as a particular evil individual or individuals. Some believe that, that this beast is an individual that will come at the end during a final tribulation period. All fair positions with fair support to them. And between this week and next week with Pastor Tom... I hope that we'll continue to make more and more connections. But this morning, let's carefully see how John describes this vision and discover its identity by its features. The beast has ten horns with ten crowns on each horn and seven heads with blasphemous names on them. Note, check out last week's passage, same features as the dragon. The horns and crowns are likely symbols of ruling power and authority. 
The beast has features of a leopard, a bear, and a lion. Okay. So, so now we know where he's drawing from in his vision. Daniel chapter 7. Where Daniel sees a vision of four beasts rising up out of the sea and he's terrified. The first three beasts resemble a leopard, a bear, and a lion. And the fourth one has ten horns on it. So here in Revelation 13, this beast seems to be a, the collective composition of all four beasts in Daniel 7. Now, Daniel, in, in, in great terror, asks, what are these terrifying beasts? And he's told. He's told that they are kings from earthly kingdoms that stand in opposition to God's kingdom. And herein lies the key to interpreting the beast of Revelation. The beast must also represent either a king or kings and kingdoms of the earth, which stand in opposition to God's kingdom and his purposes in Christ Jesus. The seven heads and ten horns of this beast likely refer to the fullness of its oppressive power. The numbers 7 and 10, commonly throughout the entire Bible, and especially in this book, represent completeness, fullness. Now, what's interesting, track closely here. Listen to what is being given to and ascribed to the beast. The dragon, Satan, gives him his throne, power, authority, one of his heads, as if it had been slain with a fatal wound, a death blow, but it heals, resurrects. And then the whole earth is amazed and follows the beast. The whole world worships the dragon because they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? Okay, so let's review now. Let's review what we're seeing here and make sense out of who, this, who and what this beast stands for. It has become clear, according to this passage's allusion to Daniel, that this beast represents secular authorities, governments, earthly kings and kingdoms that are purposed against Jesus and his kingdom one way or another. This would include then any individual or corporate governing authority that rules and reigns in such a way that opposes God and his purposes. What's important to note here is the function of this beast and the dragon, with the dragon. Here, we see the nature and function of the unholy trinity become clearer and clearer, and we'll see even more so next week. Do you see how the beast and the dragon, can you see how, how they imitate the triune Godhead, the true triune Godhead, who we worship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? 
The dragon gives a throne, power, and authority to his beast. Just like God the Father gives to his son Jesus at his ascension, also illustrated in Daniel 7. The beast as if slain, like the lamb in Revelation 5, takes a death blow, but resurrects, and thereby receives worship. The beast is a Christological parody, a counterfeit God, an imitation of the one true King Jesus. Who, who sits on their earthly thrones seeking allegiance, worship, and a following. The early church would have been able to make immediate connections. One, because many of them would have been very familiar with Daniel's visions. And two, they were under the oppressive power and authority of the Roman Empire in overt opposition to the kingdom of God and King Jesus. Remember the blasphemous names on the heads? During the life of Caesar Augustus, he received worship as a god. At his death, all of Rome proclaimed, Divus, 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 one like the gods. One of his successors, Emperor Nero, on his coins was referred to as Savior of the World. And his successor, Emperor Domitian, was commonly addressed as Our Lord and God. Blasphemous. So, what we're seeing here in Revelation 13 is the spiritual and cosmic warfare that goes on behind and through the physical earthly realities. Remember when I preached on Revelation 2 several, many weeks ago, the, the, the letter to the church in Pergamum had a temple in Pergamum to the divine Augustus where Satan's throne is, Jesus says and then rebukes the church for their tendencies to get caught up in emperor worship. The death blow to the beast likely refers to the decisive defeat of Satan by Jesus on the cross, which disarmed the powers of evil, but did not fully conquer all the forces of evil in the spiritual realm and evil earthly kingdoms yet. They still stand strong. Imagine being a resident of the empire during Jesus' time. Uh-oh. This guy, Jesus, is he really who he says he is. There's a lot of talk about him. Does that mean that it's all over? What's he going to do? Is this the end then? What? 
What? They killed him? They crucified him? <laughs> I told you. He was nobody at all. Foolish, foolish Christians. Look at them now. He was no king. There was no victory in Jesus. Pathetic. Rome still stands. The emperor lives on. Who is like our king? There is none like him. Who can stand against our king? No one. These worshipful words are used all throughout the Old Testament for the one true God of Israel. Who is like him? Who is like our God? Satan wants those words, and he gets them. He gets them through his agents. How much more foolish the kingship of Jesus sounds 2,000 years later. Time and time again, kings and kingdoms who claim their names to be of great sovereign power and, and autonomous authority in the whole world have fallen. And yet, the spirit of deifying the kingship of earthly kings rises again and again, making gods out of the kings of this world. Look, let's look and see what the beast's purposes are. We've begun to see already, but let's look at how John describes more of his role in the world in the next few verses. Verses 5 through 8. Here we see more of the identity and purposes of the beast come through. He is given. It is given to him. Four times we see it is given to him, highlighting his subordinate role. We'll come back to that. It's given a mouth and authority. The mouth speaks arrogant words, blasphemous words, blasphemes God and his people on earth, God's tabernacle. Same nature of blasphemies. This would include any and all speech, propaganda, rhetoric warfare that leads its citizens to believe that our earthly kings really rule and reign and, and that their earthly kingdoms really are where to find your protection and security. Our earthly kings are the true saviors, protectors, and providers that humanity really needs. They are the ones to give allegiance to and follow unceasingly. The authority lasts for 42 months, okay, so now we see that this can't just be a limited time back then or a limited time in the future if this is the same duration of the church age that we saw in chapter 11, the 42 months, the 1260 days, the three and a half years. 
So the influence of the beast must be in operation with Satan from the time of Jesus' first coming to his second and throughout the church age. He bears universal authority over the whole world in ways. Every tribe, nation, people, and tongue. All the earth dwellers worship him. This is important, family. The breadth and length of the beast's demonic influence becomes clear. Throughout the world, in every government, during the whole span of the church age. Now, we know that this doesn't mean that governments are inherently evil. That's important to clarify. We actually know that apostles Paul and Peter make it very clear in their letters that governments are institutions established by God for the good of society. But we who operate such governments are still broken and corrupt and in desperate need of Jesus Christ to rule and reign righteously and justly. Therefore, Satan uses as one of his primary agents earthly governments and their leaders to deceive people to thinking that they are truly sovereign and that they are the ones to put their faith in and thereby drawing people away from the one true King of kings and Lord of lords. Family, Satan is so cunning and his schemes are not easy to identify. Sometimes it's overt Throughout history, we see in, in, in totalitarian dictatorships and communist countries in the history of the world where Christianity is outlawed and punishable by death. He works in other countries and provinces that are governed by other faith groups like Islam and Buddhism and, and Hinduism that, that, that also deem Christianity punishable or even mistreatable unto death. Hence the waging war against and overcoming the saints, as we read again and again. In other countries at other times, Satan works more covertly, influencing leaders to perceive themselves as godlike figures, behaving as if they were fully autonomous using their mouths to lead people into ultimate allegiance. They declare some as righteous and condemn others so that it becomes profitable to follow them. Arrogance and lies exalting themselves in seeking undivided allegiance and excessive praise from its citizens. At other times and places, the advancements in society are represented and propagated by kings and presidents to be direct results of breaking away from a transcendent purpose and moral law. In other words, get rid of God and we will be free. We are free here. Do away with the old oppressive ways of Christianity and follow your heart. We are free here. 
The self becomes the new God of society. And you Christians and your ancient oppressive ways and suffocating laws, get out. We have come so far. We're so much better now. Crafty, crafty deceit. Maybe you've heard in your head, in whatever way, or around you, in various forms. Maybe you've even felt a prompting rise up within you to look. Look at him. Look at his power, his might, his influence. He's the one who's going to keep you in the promised land. He's the one that's going to protect us. This is your land. Get comfy. Get real comfy. Do you want to keep what you have? Do you want more? Look. Look. Follow him. Follow him. No, no, no. No, no, no. Don't look at him. Hey, he's the one who put him there, right? Look. He'll protect you. Follow him. Or maybe... Look at them. Aren't they wonderful? That's the policy you need. Then you'll get everything you've ever wanted and needed. You deserve it. You do. Go get it. Fight for it. You deserve to be free. No, no, no. Don't look at him. Hey, he wants you to be free too. You need to be free now. Look. Look. Follow them. Follow. Family, wherever your trust lies on the political spectrum, at any time, in any way, know that Satan is there. He's there. Can we discern it? Can we discern it? His beastly influence comes in many forms to lead us away from wholehearted devotion to God and toward giving our faith and allegiance to the leaders, the systems, and the powers of this world. Family, watch out. Watch out. Brothers and sisters, guard your hearts. He knows how to get to you. He is the master deceiver. Fears and anxiety can be so paralyzing to our purpose and our mission. And remember, it's not just physical persecution that leads the church away. It's also riches and the alluring pulls of a prosperous society that we saw in the opening letters that leads the church away. Riches and comforts can be numbing to our zeal for God and his mission, making him known. Our lives have purpose, family, and a secure destiny. Those who follow King Jesus have their names written in the book of life. We have no need to fear for our futures, amen? 
Let's close now by reflecting on how we respond as Christians to the reality of Satan and his opposing influences through his beast. Look at the closing verses, 9 and 10. He who has an ear, let him hear. Remember, this is the same call to all seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, to those who conquer. So he continues to encourage the understanding that perseverance in the midst of worldly defeat is spiritual victory. And then this confusing saying here, which is from Jeremiah 15 and 43, likely serves to prepare the saints for their destinies on earth. If it is unto captivity, then so be it. Trust me. If it be by the sword, so be it. Trust me. He who takes captive and he who executes by the sword will not go unpunished. These last three lines lead us to the main point of this passage. In this church age, Satan prevails by falsehood, but the saints persevere by faith. Satan prevails by falsehood, but the saints persevere by faith. Here is the perseverance in the faith of the saints. What? What? What did we just read, John? This terrifying beast that slaughters us? Herein is the perseverance in the faith of the saints? What did we just read that is powerful enough to equip and empower us to persevere well as witnesses of the gospel? The kingship of Jesus. The sovereign, eternal kingship of Lord Jesus. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to him. No authority is held in on earth or in heaven without being ultimately given by God for his purposes and his time. John wants his followers to know. His, John wants his, his fellow persecuted Christians and Christ followers to, to see that the thing that matters most is the eternal reign of God, not the temporary power of evil. Family, we are seeing the same themes here over and over and over again in this book. The presence of the kingdom of God and the end of cosmic history is complete. That was accomplished on the cross 2,000 years ago. Amen? I'm reading right now through Leslie Newbigin's works. He's one of the most influential missiologists of the 20th century. And in one of his books, he writes, The kingdom of God is veiled and hidden right now. It is not a demonstration of power and manifest victory that is obvious to the naked eye of unconverted people. It's also not a difference of being complete or incomplete. Rather, he says, it is hidden in the sense that it comes in the way of weakness and suffering. The victory is sure, but just not obvious. And family, herein lies the, the most amazing paradoxical nature of the cross. In what looks like defeat lies the ultimate victory of God. 
He says, the center of the revealed mystery of the reign of God is the cross. There the power of God is revealed, but it's revealed as weakness. The glory of God is revealed, but it's revealed as humiliation. The victory of God is revealed, but it's revealed as defeat. The church shares in this victory, but also in the cross-shaped nature of Jesus' mission. Family, this is so important for us to understand our role in the world today. Newbegin highlights this double character of both the kingdom of God, the mission of Jesus, and our mission today in both the visible and invisible realms, power and weakness, victory and defeat, mighty works and suffering, faith and hope. Both are manifest in the mission of Jesus, and both are present in the mission of the church. He says, if either is lost in this age, then our mission and our vision will be distorted by either a triumphalist activism or a defeatist quietism. Family, this is the way of Jesus that he calls us to follow in and so represent him in the world through our sacrificial service and love for others. We advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Newbegin suggests that the only reason why God holds back final judgment and restoration is so that we would go and proclaim this good news and victory to the whole world and save many more before he returns with fully disclosed power and glory when every eye will see and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord. Amen? Christians, Jesus' death and resurrection was our day of jubilee. We are free. We are truly protected. As we wait for his return, family, let us not fear man and the systems of man. Let us take our emotional energies that we invest in the purposes of man and transfer them to seeking God, seeking the fear of the Lord with a, with, a, with a fear that leans toward him, as Charles Spurgeon says, one that, that, that sees him in all his beauty and goodness and graciousness and clings to him with a joyful, eternally secure, intense love for him that comes from him. He is in control. Believe in our Lord Jesus and receive his peace, his protection, his promises. Our God reigns, family. Amen? Though Satan prevails by falsehood in this life, the saints persevere by faith. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that you have so revealed yourself to us in your word that this is all we need to live steadfastly, in hope, peace, endurance, strength. Lord, fill us up with the hope of the gospel and send us out as bold as lions, making yourself known and declaring the victories of God to the world around us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you, family. I know it's late, but on your way out, I also have uh, three books for summer reads that I would recommend. We just ended with The Fear of the Lord. Michael Reeves, Rejoice and Tremble. Just read this last week. Amazing. The surprising good news of the fear of the Lord. Highly recommend if you want to come up and, and see afterward. The Insanity of God, stories of the persecuted church throughout the world under heavy-handed persecution. This will make you tear and run out the door sharing the gospel to everyone you know. It will change your life. Please read it. And lastly, Free to Believe, The Battle Over Religious Liberty in America, written by a leading Christian uh, religious liberty um, uh, Supreme Court uh, lawyer, uh, just released two years ago, helps us understand the current state of, of, of the church in America, the things that we should be concerned with, not so concerned with, and preparing us to move forward as faithful witnesses of God. I would highly recommend all three of these. You can come check them out. Be blessed, family. And uh, go about the Lord's work as you move on from here. Amen.